This is Her Deepest Ecologies, the podcast. I am your host, Jessica Gigo. We are at a turning point on this planet and in this country. In conversation with a wide range of artists, makers, creators, and caretakers, this podcast takes on two fundamental and interconnected questions. How do we care for ourselves and each other? How do we nurture the earth? Let's find out what these luminaries have to say. Martha Jordan is the founder and executive director of the Northwest Swan Conservation Association. I met Martha in 2003 when I first moved to the Skagit Valley. She was offering a class about swans at the Padilla Bay Interpretive Center. Most recently, I saw her speak at an international swan symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I continue to be interested in the work that she does and the way she advocates for swan health throughout the Northwest. I never intended in my entire life to work with swans. They were not on my list of anything. So what I did do, though, was back in the mid-70s, I was working as a wildlife biologist for a consulting company, and I also really enjoyed watching the snow geese up in the Skagit Valley, and they were having a great deal of biological difficulty, and the Russians were very active because they breed on Wrangell Island in Russia. And so I started volunteering for the Russian scientists and reading collars, neck neck bands on the birds, and I spent couple of winters doing that and that was really interesting and um, I also saw maybe two or three trumpeter swans in the Skagit Valley there were not very many trumpeter swans in the valley at all during that time so we're talking you know like less than 50 wow yeah so we're talking very few numbers and um, and I saw the callers and I wrote them down and I just kind of went on with my snow goose work. And I then uh, my company that I was working for sent me to Alaska for the spring uh, to work on a ship. And I did. And one of the days we had to drive between Homer, Alaska and Anchorage. And as we did, we crossed the Moose River at Sterling, Alaska. And lo and behold, what's in the river but some trumpeter swans. And what are they wearing? Blue collars. So we crawled on our hands and knees down through the muskeg, and I read the collars. And much to my absolute shock, they were the same numbers as the birds in the Skagit. And I went, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I never had given it much thought. Uh, The snow geese migrated through that same area, so I got to also see a whole lot of snow geese. And I thought, okay, so I'll go home to the Washington when I'm done with all this, and I'll call up the Department of Game at the time. It it wasn't the Department of Fish and Wildlife then, it was the Department of Game. And I'll get the info and, you know, move on with my life. And when I got home, they said, swans? Uh, We don't know anything really about swans. (laughs) And we know nothing about the blue collars that you're talking about. And I went, oh, okay. And then I I, I really got curious uh, about all this. So I started doing swan surveys in the Skagit 
in the late 70s with another person, Russ Canna, and we wrote a paper and we sent it in to the International Swan Symposium, which was in Sapporo, Japan in 1980. Uh, I did not go. It was a long journey, too much money. And, um, and it was about what we had found in the Skagit as citizen science. And the next thing I know, I decided that we needed to know more about swans in Western Washington in general, because I kept getting a note from somebody here or there in Western Washington that they had trumpeters in their field in the back in uh, some remote town, you know, it was a little burg somewhere in Western Washington and on the Olympic Peninsula. So the department sent me on a little journey that they paid me to drive around all of Western Washington to look at swans. And I found a number of them in everybody's little back pond or out in Willapa Bay or, you know, someplace like that. And I wrote up my little, my paper on, on that and gave it to the agency. And then around 1982, 83, um, they came to me and they said, well, since you're the one that knows more about swans in the state of Washington than anybody else, uh, why don't you write up some thoughts on swan management? You know, what, what would you like to see for swan management in the state of Washington? So I sat down and I just kind of brainstormed my little way through all this and I turned it into the department. And um, the following year, they, they were updating the uh, Pacific Flyway plan gets updated every, I think it's 10 years. And every species in the flyway then gets an update, like tundra swans, trumpeter swans, whatever. And every state can have their own little section within that. So California has one, Oregon, Washington. And at, at the time, Eastern Washington wasn't even being considered as swan, swans being there, trumpeters being there, because they actually kind of weren't, except maybe a little at Turnbull, but nothing like today. And... Um, and when the document, that document came out, the, the flyway plan, almost verbatim was my report. And I, and I realized, oh, um, okay, uh, I, I must have credibility. It, it was really interesting. And, and as they say, the rest is history. Wow. And the people that I met out in these rural places the oystermen, the citizens, the farmers, the tribes themselves, because they were all over the Macaw Reservation and, and other places, um, they, were, they didn't want me to stop. They really cared about their swans. And it was the people that really drove me to keep going, even when I was just like, I'm really tired of this. You know, I, I don't have any peers or anyone else to really talk about. So I just kept going and 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 going and um, and here we are today, you know, some forty years later, and I still, not anymore. I'm the only one that knows about swans, but I'm the the, the uh, institutional memory, as they say. Yeah, I mean, I don't hear. I mean, in terms of like the Department of Fish and Wildlife and some of the other entities that are involved in managing like wildfowl I don't I can't think of anyone else who knows about swans I, th I feel like you're well, still the only one <laughs> apparently uh what you don't hear 
uh, in our state, and, and I will only speak to my state. So I do know that there was a colleague of mine, Ruche, in Idaho, and she was uh, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. In the Rocky Mountain population, she was my peer. She was my equal, uh, maybe even more so. Uh, she was an amazing human being and had incredible knowledge. Unfortunately, she passed away unexpectedly last March. Mm, and sorry. she's a great loss to, to all of us. You didn't get to meet her at the conference, but um, she did listen in and she did ask some questions. Um, she basically succumbed to long COVID. Oh, wow. I think that's really what happened. Um, but we did get to see her on the way home from the conference. We stopped by and I made sure that Kyle and the graduate student got to meet what I pretty much knew would be the last time I would see her. Um, and, and I miss her every day because she was institutional memory and beyond um, and a, a truly great biologist. So in terms of, of, of this, it was like, I just kept going because the people demanded it. But within the agencies, um, here in Washington, swans were never really high on their list. Why? Because it, it begs to another question that you asked about um, the recovery, uh, the restoration uh, of swans. But let me just say that currently, as of the last, three years, I think, we had a, a people retire in their careers. <laughs> and um, the waterfowl program manager for the state of Washington with WDFW retired. Good man, good man. And he, uh, who took his place was a man named Kyle Spriggins, who you did meet. Yeah. Kyle is, um, because we have different, um, as, as we go through our educational process and our careers, he actually has a background with tundra swans and a little bit with trumpeters, but mostly tundra. He was at the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge working with swans in the, I want to say, sort of the 2005 to 20-something I was in the Yukon Delta where he was in 1986, 87 or 88 or something with my border collies herding wild geese during the molt with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and banding thousands of geese. Best gig ever. <laughs> Hardest physical work ever. Um, so we had this common bond of understanding the swans and he had a, a he has a true professional interest in swans as well as a personal interest. So we got along really well. He has been an incredible colleague and mentor. He is uh, finds ways to creatively go about um, working with the big picture. Agriculture is the base of this in Washington. It's the base of this in almost every state where you have swans. And, and so now the Department of Fish and Wildlife truly does have an interest. Although in the early 2000s, when we had the die off, WDFW really stepped up to the, the plate. 
and uh, they worked very, very hard on swans. You don't hear about that. You don't hear about it because there isn't anybody out there that really knows what truly happened except me. <laughs> and that's, well, Mike Smith. And he works for the department now. But in those days, he was a grad student. And um, and there's a, a couple of other people, but they, they're more like you. They just, they came and they, they left. But anybody who's still working and, and still active working with swans is, is myself. Everybody else has retired or moved on, mostly retired. And so, yes, there is an interest in swans, but there's, you know, competing interests with everything else. So I still continue doing the surveys. I still continue doing these things. And I do it in as a partner with WDFW. So everything I have done in the past and everything moving forward is in partnership with them. And there's always been somebody in the department to connect with. Now we just happen to have um, a really good person in Kyle Spragans is, is the waterfowl program manager. Well, yep. I, was, I was just thinking, so I, I first met you in 2003 because I went to one of your talks about swans at the Padilla Bay Interpretive Center. Yep. And I had just moved to the Skagit Valley. So this is like my 20th year anniversary of moving to the Skagit Valley. And, you know, I immediately was just taken aback. Like, what are what are these creatures doing here? They just flew in out of a fairy tale and landed in the field. Um, so I wanted to know more. And then most recently, I heard you talk at the International Swan Symposium. And I'm, I'm really not a birder. I just, I'm, I find the swans, you know, just captivating. And I'm wanting to learn more about them. And, and I've been writing about them. And so... Uh, I know that there has been these kind of ebbs and flows in population size, especially in the Pacific population, which is what we have in the Skagit Valley. Can you talk about the the recovery efforts and what's happened? Because I'm, I'm still a little confused in terms of that timeline. Okay, so when you use the word recovery, um, <clears throat> it's kind of a, a an oxymoron in the PCP. And let me give you a reason why so that people really understand. There's three populations, and we're gonna talk about trumpeter swans because tundra swans, which I also work with, mm. are completely different in terms of how they are managed by the governing bodies, internationally as well as nationally. This applies to trumpeter swans as well. So trumpeter swans, in terms of their just distribution and biology, are divided into three populations. We have the Pacific Coast population, which essentially is from the Cascade Mountain Range west in both Oregon, Washington, and also in California. And going up into BC, the, 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 that Cascade Range continues on up into Alaska. So everything west of that is the Pacific Coast population. They breed in Alaska. They breed on the west side of that mountain range. So when you get to Whitehorse, mm. that's a dividing line in a very different place. And it is awesome, beyond awesome at Whitehorse. And, and so you have this rocky, you have the Pacific Coast population, and they mostly go up into Alaska and breed in Alaska. They also breed in far western Yukon territory and western 
BC. Hmm. Okay. Then you have the Rocky Mountain population. And that goes from basically the Cascade Mountain Range in Washington all the way through uh, the tri-state population of Montana, uh, Wyoming, Idaho, uh, Utah, uh, Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington, all of the, and Eastern BC, and Eastern Yukon, and Alberta is in the Rocky Mountain population. That group of swans is, uh, let me just go down here and read what I kind of wrote for myself because it's uh, it's kind of uh, convoluted in so many ways, but you had asked me about that. Uh, it might be up here. Uh, well, so anyway, they um, so the Rocky Mountain population also has some divisions in it. And one of those, and the main one that you saw at, at the Yellowstone conference is the Greater Yellowstone group of trumpeter swans. So the Alberta breeding population, which then flies down through the Rocky Mountain range, including Eastern Washington, Eastern Oregon, all that, and, and the tri-state area. They winter a lot down through that zone and probably, and they go down all the way to Utah into the Great Salt Lake. How many? Don't ask me. I don't know. I don't know that anybody really knows what's really there, to be really honest. But we do know that they go there. So the greater Yellowstone population of swans continues to be breeding at Red Rock Lakes in the greater Yellowstone region of that tri-state area. They continue to breed. And that group of birds is not doing well. Hmm. It's, it's still kind of on the brinkish. So that's why there's a lot of attention being paid to that area. But the Alberta birds, which are migratory, they come down and they they're doing they're doing well, quite well. So there's no problem with the Alberta breeding population. So when you hear about the group that's in trouble, it's the Greater Yellowstone hmm. zone, and you saw the maps of that. Yeah, what the Greater Yellowstone and a little bit periphery to that as well. Um, then you have another population. So you have the PCP, you have the RMP. And then you have the interior population. So everything um, east of the line of the interior line. And let me just uh, hang on. I'm going to go look at a map for my own. Because <laughs> suddenly my geography kind of went out the window here. Uh, oops. So, uh, okay. So as you get through half of Montana, and uh, Idaho, uh, Wyoming, and at the eastern end of Montana, the eastern side of uh, Wyoming and the eastern side of the states to the south, and including Texas, all of that, all the way to the east coast is the interior population. The interior population is completely, totally, 100% human restored. Mm except for the very far western part in Montana and Wyoming. But even there, they did some restoration and releases 
of captive reared birds. And you went to the Wyoming wetland place and saw that. Yeah. Okay. So, and Oregon, Eastern Oregon is doing a restoration in Southeast Oregon uh, because at Malheur at one time, they did have trumpeter swans that were nesting there. And they had quite a number of them. Well, yes. Then life happened, floods happened, and, and the Great Basin flooded very, very, very badly for a couple of years because it has no outlet to the ocean. And, and so there was a, a decline. And Gary Ivey wanted to do some restoration because he has a true passion for the Malheur area. And, and, and Gary's a really good biologist. So that begat that whole little Southeast Oregon thing and we've contributed birds to them. But in Eastern Washington, we did not need any restoration. It, it was gonna happen on its own mm -hmm. because that's what the birds were telling us. But then you go to the, the interior population and virtually all of it was human restored. Started with Minnesota, Wisconsin, then Iowa got involved, Michigan, Ohio, and, and other states started to release more and more signets. I sent uh, Iowa well over 70 birds. Oh, wow. Yeah. And some of them are still alive. It's way cool. Yeah. That you, <laughs> started, that you captured or did they were they reared in? They Washington? were signets from Northwest Trek. Hmm. And we had some donations of adult birds. So I took a couple to the Y Marsh wetlands in Canada one year, and uh, but most of the birds uh, went to Iowa hmm. and got released, and they're all marked. And some of them have had, you know, like forty signets and you know all kinds of really cool things. Yeah. Uh, so, but that is a whole restored population, and that is completely and totally managed differently than anything that is relatable to the Pacific Coast population and a little bit of hybrid in the RMP. Hmm. But mostly uh, the RMP is wild birds on their own and have been wild all their, their history. But in our area, there has been no need for restoration. They've done just fine on their own. Now, the reality is way back when when trumpeter swans were thought to be either extirpated or uh, very low numbers. Keep in mind, Alaska was an unknown territory. We didn't have airplanes. We didn't have cell digital anything. Hmm. So you know, keep in mind back in the 30s, 40s and 50s, Alaska was really a hard place to survey, a hard place to go, a hard place to do anything with. So, um, and in and in Washington, uh, people were thinking, uh, the biologists certainly, that trumpeter swans were extirpated from our state, and they were gone. And uh, except for the winter time, that there was no breeding, that there were very few, they were really gonna be somewhere else, but certainly, uh, so sightings of swans on the outer coast were always marked down as tundra swans. 
Yet the photos that I have seen in people's homes and albums clearly show there were trumpeters there. Hmm. Not all the time. There were a lot of tundra swans, but a lot of trumpeters were there as well. But nobody was calling them that because, well, every biologist of of that era, the 40s, the 50s, and into the 60s, it was like, they can't be there. They're gone. But in fact, they weren't. And it wasn't until, I think it was 1963, 62, that, oh gosh, the name just totally escaped me. Um, Jim King, uh, who is a biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, he had, and he did aerial population surveys at the time, he lived near Juneau. Um, he took up an airplane and he went flying out on the um, the Minto Flats area and all of that and discovered that there were 3,000 or so trumpeter swans nesting. Hmm. And and it was like, whoa, <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah. Well, yes, it was a surprise to, to them. But when you look back on it, no surprise at all. <laughs> And where were they wintering? Well, they were wintering in places where humans weren't. Hmm. And so smart Smart creatures. (laughs) So of course no one was reporting them because nobody was seeing them, right? Because they were in something. But you remember if you look at Lonesome Lake, the the book Lonesome Lake, where the people were feeding trumpeter swans throughout this whole period. Is that BC? That was in BC, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in British Columbia. And well, yes, they were feeding them because that's where they were coming to where they could get food. And that was part of the Pacific Coast population, I might add. And they were wintering through those wetlands up into, you know, BC, but nobody was living there or we didn't have any way to, you know, where were they going to report their sighting? A, they didn't even know they were rare. (laughs) So there was no mechanism to, to really encourage people to report their their birds at the same time we began to see a few in the the late 60s and into the 70s in the Skagit and when I say a few it's like less than 100 Mm -hmm. and by the mid 70s we had like 150 I I don't have my data exactly in front of me but I, I have the data and um and then from there it began to slowly grow in the Skagit And then um, I began to look at, okay, so let's go out and look at all of Western Washington. So in the 70s, late 70s, is when I did my first uh, Skagit Valley work with Russ Caniff, and we published that paper. And then after that, the Department of Fishing, the Department of Game at the time, gave me a little money to drive around Western Washington and look at swans. And I did. And that's when it became very clear that none of us knew anything about really about swans, but the swans were telling us something. And and there became a pattern. And so again, as I said, the rest is, is history uh, because it got me curious. Mm-hmm. And I got more curious and more curious. And the less the agencies knew, the more curious I got. But what was more important was the people themselves got curious and wanted to know more. And so I spent a lot of time out on the Long Beach Peninsula because that was a stronghold for for trumpeters. Mm -hmm. And 
and saw things that we needed to do to bring trumpeters back uh, and and throughout the the whole peninsula area. And then the Skagit was completely different because it wasn't wetlands, it was farmland. And what was driving the bus at the time was waterfowl-friendly crops because there were a lot of dairy farms uh, a lot of waterfowl-friendly farming because you had the grass, you had the corn, you had other crops. And so again, that was back in the 70s and the 80s. And then in 1990, we had a huge flood in the Skagit that inundated everything, including Fur Island, huge dike breaches. That shifted the population uh, as we knew it. Not that it... Uh, not that it made it go down, it just shifted use patterns. Hmm. Because prior to 1990, every winter you'd come and you the, the trumpeter swans would come into a certain field at a certain intersection. And there were only trumpeter swans uh, east of I-5 and only tundra swans west of I-5. For all the wow. 12 years that I surveyed swans to 1990. Hmm. I mean, it was like maybe one might be found on the other side of I-5, you know, either way, but it was a dividing line. Why? Who knows? <laughs> you know, who knows? And then the flood came and Fur Island went underwater and the tundra swans had nowhere to go hmm. except north of Highway 20 and east of I-5. And ever since then, they have been a mix. So, I mean, the numbers now in Skagit Valley, I mean, they're saying, isn't it like 15,000 yeah, swans are there? Yeah. So that, I mean, so it, there's the issue of not really having a lot of survey data to compare to until you started collecting data. But the ramp up of this, of the trumpeter swan, the Pacific population well, trumpeter swans... It, here, here's something else that is going on. So if you look at, you have to, so this is what awareness is about, is you have to look at the big picture. So when I first started, the reality was in the Skagit, we'll just take the Skagit Valley and, and even the Snohomish Valley had a few swans, but Whatcom County had a few, but it was mostly the Skagit, greater Skagit area. It was mostly tundra swans. Hmm. And there were some trumpeters. That has completely shifted. Hmm. And it is now 85% trumpeters. And, well, probably in the Skagit is more than that. Uh, and, and very few uh, tundra swans. What is also interesting is, keep in mind, I said that I spread myself everywhere and I looked for trumpeter swans in all the little backwaters and the backfields and all that. And I'm still doing that. And after last year's midwinter survey, and we did all of Western Washington. And when I say that, to the best of the ability of what the agencies had available and what we had available. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there were places missed. However, there was a lot of aerial surveys done besides the ones that I did. Uh, there were a lot done. Some of them are only known as 
white birds because when you're in an airplane, you can't really tell trumpeter from tundra. But when you go down to do some ground truthing, it's very apparent that down on the Columbia River, most of those birds are tundra swans. Hmm. Okay, there are some trumpeters. In fact, there's more trumpeters than you would have thought of five years before. And what we found, or what Kyle found when he looked at all the data, is that we now have a shift in Western Washington where it is 85% trumpeters and 15% tundra. Hmm. And that is a dynamic shift from even 15 years ago. Hmm. So more and more trumpeters are coming in and fewer tundras. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that there's fewer tundras or more trumpeters, if you will, by leaps and bounds. It means the distribution of the two okay. species is changing. That's interesting. As has the snow goose population dramatically changed in the last six years, well, even five. Hmm. And I mean dramatically changed, which is why you should come to the snow goose presentation. Um, so when Kyle said this to me, I was like, oh, well, that's really interesting, you know, because that's what I found when I was doing my surveys is a complete lack of tundra swans in some areas hmm. where I always saw them before. They are no longer there. Why? Good question. <laughs> the swans know, <laughs> but yeah. the rest of us are only left to guess. Uh, why? Why is this shift happening? And we're talking Western Washington. We don't know. It, it, but it is, or it has, let's just put it that way. Um, we have some ideas about what might be going on, but there's nothing concrete that we can put our finger on and say, this is why, or that's why, because it's all Western Washington. Hmm. So and in the ag areas, it's dramatically shifted to trumpeters. Hmm. Now, does this mean that trumpeters can outcompete or are, I don't know, but for potatoes. a long time, <laughs> they, they were, you know, symbiotic relationships. Hmm. So what is it that's going on? But here's another food for thought that very few people know. So I, I don't remember what year it was, but it was uh, in the early 2000s. Um, 300 tundra swans showed up in the Chehalis Elma area. Hmm. And they were all tundras. There weren't any trumpeters at all. And they were there for three years, I think. They kept coming back and there was maybe 400, you know, something around like that. And on year four, not a tundra swan to be found, and 300 trumpeter swans were there. Hmm. Complete 180-degree species shift. Hmm. No one can explain this. It's like tag team or something. <laughs> we're out, you're in. <laughs> and I mean, when, when you looked at the trumpeter flock, there wasn't a tundra to be found. Hmm. It was like just a complete shift. So fast forward uh, a few years and down in the Fall City area of the Snoqualmie Valley, uh, we had uh, a, we a weather pattern that came through uh, from the north 
it flooded the Snoqualmie Valley, the Skagit Valley. I mean, we had this flood. And uh, and and after it was over, and it was right at the migration of the tundra trumpeter kind of migration, suddenly we had about 300 to 350 tundra swans down in the Snoqu uh, Carnation's uh, Fall City area. No trumpeters, but that many tundra swans. And there were a lot of tundra swans coming through the Snohomish, Monroe kind of area as well. And the next year, of course, there was no flood and all that, but we had 300 and some tundra swans stay for the winter. And the following year, three years, same thing happened. Tundra swans came back. There was a trumpeter or two, you know, a family group, and you know, but nothing, nothing that would be more than like 10. And the next year, not a tundra swan could be found, but there were 300 trumpeters. Hmm. That's it's like, once again, I went, okay, well, that's interesting. Same timing, completely different geographic area. Completely. I mean, we're talking, you know, a long ways apart. And a complete species shift. Hmm. Why did that happen? we still don't have a clue. <laughs> so if, if you look at those things, you know, nobody would have noticed that had I not been kind of looking at swans a lot and, and went, oh, looky, uh, why do we suddenly have no tundras anymore? And the number of tundra swans coming through that whole flyway area uh, in Western Washington completely shifted to primarily trumpeter swans. And I, I see a few tundra swans in the Snohomish, Monroe, Snoqualmie area, but very, very few compared to the trumpeters. Hmm. And we've had as many as 2,000 trumpeters here. Mostly we end up in, you know, less than 1,000 hmm. uh, through my area uh, that, that I live in. And, and most of them are still in the Skagit and, and that area. And a lot of that has, again, shifted uh, use patterns in part because agricultural shifts happen where swans used to come in like clockwork all the time trumpeters every year at the beginning of the season that is now um, shall we say housing development hmm. yeah uh, so you have all these habitat changes tremendous loss of agriculture conversion from dairy to berry so the loss of the dairy farms is, is really a loss of waterfowl-friendly farming, not only to swans, but to uh, snow geese and, and other raptors, everything. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the swan die-off and where it happened in the early 2000s, uh, way to the east and the northeast in uh, Whatcom County, out by... Uh, Sumas and, and that area, all of the dairy farms there, well, not all of them, but the vast majority are gone. And it's all berry farms. Mm -hmm. And there's no swans, there's no waterfowl. There, it's all changed so dramatically. Yeah. There are still dairy farms on the Canadian side, uh, but it has shifted the use pattern of swans to more central east. Whatcom County. Hmm. 
And so it, it and of course the dairy the the berry farms are coming now into Skagit. The uh, hazelnut industry is now taking over a lot of Skagit. Uh, so you have uh, a, a continuing loss of waterfowl-friendly farming. And that is going to result in a loss in the carrying capacity of our most treasured place, the Skagit Valley. Thank you for listening to Her Deepest Ecologies, the podcast. For more information on our guest, please visit the Substack page for photos, complete bios, links mentioned in our conversation, and more. These interviews were recorded at Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to sound engineer Aisha. All episodes were edited at my farm, Harmony Fields.